Well, we begin a brand new series this morning on the book of uh, Micah from the first half of the Bible. But first I want to talk about the all-important issue of little kids and their stuffy animals. Little kids love those stuffy animals, don't they? My youngest daughter, Malia, who's now 13, uh, when she was a little, little girl, she had a little bear named Fruit Cup. But in her toddler language, as she's learning to, to talk, it came out duped up. And so she would drag duped up around the house by the arm. It was very, very cute. Well, Christian recording artist and author Carolyn Ahrens shares the story of her best friends and their little five-year-old son, Sam, and his favorite stuffy called Lamb Lamb. Now, two things about Lamb Lamb were unique. As you can see on the screen, Lamb Lamb's kind of a hybrid creature. He's got a lamb's head and little paws, but the rest of him is basically a big blue blanket, a fleece blanket. Second unique thing about Lamb Lamb is that he had a huge propensity towards crime. First, our friends had a gas fireplace, Carolyn Aaron writes, which became extremely hot to the touch. So, Sam's parents, not wanting Sam to get burned by touching the gas fireplace, taught him that Sam, no, don't turn on the switch. What does little Sam do? He wants to turn on the switch. Whenever they weren't in the room, all of a sudden they would hear whoosh, and there would be the fire turned on. And Sam, no matter how many times he was confronted by the evidence, Sam, the fire's burning. You turned it on. He would say the same defense every time. Lamb Lamb did it. The more exasperated Sam's parents grew, the more emphatic he became. It's not me. It's Lamb Lamb. Finally, one evening, Sam's dad, he was washing dishes in the kitchen, and he sees this little blur goes by. And he knows exactly what's going on. And so he comes around, he comes to the door, tiptoes, looks over. He's going to catch Sam in the act. And sure enough, there is Sam reaching for the switch for the fireplace. But his hand is draped in the blue blanket of Lamb Lamb. And there's Lamb Lamb's little head. And sure enough, Lamb Lamb turned on the switch. Sam dad's, Sam's dad was amazed. And Carolyn Aaron writes this, she says, I guess we can thank Adam and Eve for the human genius for deflection. The woman made me do it was Adam's first response to the initial sin when he took the fruit. It was the serpent who deceived me, Eve says. Technically, neither Adam nor Eve nor little five-year-old Sam were lying. But the ability we each possess as human beings, to rationalize our actions, blame them on other people or forces, inevitably leads to harm. And I've been thinking about Sam and Lamb Lamb and Adam and Eve in the context of confession. And that brings us to this powerful book of Micah in the first half of the Bible. It was named after the prophet that God called to try to bring an entire nation to confession. Thanks to Tracy Patterson for her good work on our series poster. And the tagline of the poster, if you can see under Micah the title, it says, Minor Prophet, Major Message. And I'm praying that as a 10-week journey through this book, that it will profoundly help us understand the workings of God, both in history and in our lives, right here, right now. 
the whole plan of Micah opens up and there's some amazing prophecies of Jesus, the coming Messiah. There's these incredible warnings, this call to repentance for the southern kingdom of Judah. And there is one of the most memorable lines in all of Scripture uh, distills down what you and I are supposed to do. What, are, what does God want us to do? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. All right, we're going to dive in. And my first point's entitled, Micah and his times, and I want us to look at these questions. Who is Micah? What were the times that he lived in? What was happening in that southern kingdom of Judah during his prophecies? Well, to start off with, Micah is a prophet. And what does that mean? Well, it's a spokesperson for God. Now, a prophet always does two really important things. Number one, a prophet tells direct messages from God to people right here, right now in the present. Number two, a prophet passes on God's plans for the future. Someone has summarized it this way. They said, true prophets of God are both foretellers, the present, and foretellers, the future. Bible scholar Gary Smith says this about Micah. Micah has received messages from God, and it is his obligation to confront the serious injustices in his society. Fear must be overcome. Unpopularity must, sorry, I'm losing my place here, overcome. Unpopularity must be ignored. And the practices of other false prophets and priests must be rejected. He must have courage to reach his goal of causing people to recognize their own sinfulness. Only then will he be able to lead them to the point where they will allow God to transform their lives. The whole point of Micah was to try and bring that southern kingdom of Judah to that state of confession, that state of repentance. All right, so Micah himself, he grew up in this little town called Morasheth Gath, a country village. It was kind of in the plains, the flat area of Israel, heading towards the Philistine territory. There was a major fortress six miles away called Lachish. Now, most of the prophecies that Micah gives in this book of Micah are presented in the capital city of Jerusalem. So you have this image of Micah, his home base is this little town of Morasheth Gath, and, and God would send him to the big city. He would deliver the prophecies, he would interact with the kings and the leaders of the city, and then he would go back to his hometown. He always brought it back to that little small rural country village. Micah 3.8 is an amazing verse where Micah describes the feeling of what it's like to be a prophet of God. What is it like when God's Spirit fills you up, gives you the content of the message to say as well as the power to say it? But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression to Israel, his sin. Powerful, powerful verse. And that's what was necessary because a prophet faced constant opposition, 
Nobody wanted to listen to the warnings, the message he was bringing. It took tremendous courage. And Micah knew that he couldn't sustain it all on his own. He needed to be filled by the Spirit of God. So what's kind of the big picture of the book of Micah? Well, Israel is divided into two kingdoms at this point in history. We've got Israel in the north, essentially 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, and their capital is Samaria. The southern kingdom is two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and it's called uh, Judea, the kingdom of Judah or Judea. Now, these are pretty small little countries in the midst of the whole area of the ancient Near East, but they were extremely vital because if you were in the north, if you were in the east or up in what we today call Turkey or Greece or or any of that whole upper Mediterranean region, and you wanted to get down to Egypt and North Africa, that's the way you went. You went right through Israel and Judah. And similarly, if you're in North Africa, or Ethiopia, or, or Egypt, any of those countries, and you wanted to get up north, this is the way you went. So small little countries, but extremely strategic, extremely valuable. And other countries wanted to control this area. And the country during Micah's day that was the most warlike, the most violent, the most bloodthirsty, and on the move was the nation of Assyria. And scholars have, uh, and archaeologists have uncovered uh, pictures carved in the stone walls called reliefs. These are actual Assyrian soldiers. You can see their archers on horseback their swords. These were fearsome warriors. They had a scary reputation for violence and no mercy. And so Israel, that northern kingdom, has been repeatedly warned by God for over 500 years. And they would get it right a little bit of the time, but the vast majority of the time, their leaders were corrupt, their prophets weren't speaking true words of God, and the hearts of the people were led astray into idol worship and constant injustice. The amount of times in the prophets that it calls the nation, says, stop abusing each other. Stop cheating and lying and stealing and ripping each other off. Stop abusing the foreigner. And God had warned them over and over. And, and sometimes that northern kingdom was on the brink of disaster and God reaches down in his mercy and saves them. And the people repent and they, they would follow him for a little bit and then they drift away again. And so God is finally allowing judgment to fall in that northern kingdom, and he's going to use the Assyrians to bring his judgment. And that takes place in 722 BC. The Assyrians do. They crush the northern kingdom of Israel. They take the people into exile. They decimate the capital of Samaria. And the question that preoccupies the biggest chunk of the book of Micah is, will Judah follow suit with its northern cousins? And so God sends the prophet Micah to Judah as a nation to give it one more warning. And in the midst of that, he gives them hope and comfort and encouragement. He gives them the promise of the Messiah and he lays out exactly in crystal clear language what God wants the people of Judah to do. Here's a visual of kind of how it all comes together. There are seven chapters in the book of Micah. Chapters 1 and 2 take place while a king named Ahaz 
was king in that southern kingdom of Judah. Idol worship is rampant, as well as unacceptable worship of the one true God. As I said, just as the people in the north were acting terribly, so during Ahaz's reign, the people in Judah were acting in terrible ways. What's the result? The whole nation is on a downhill slide. But then, in chapter 3, there's a change. A new king comes to power. God brings in a man named Hezekiah. And for the first few years of his reign, he kind of stabilizes things. It's more steady. It's not a disaster. And then we move to chapters 4 and 5. And this is where Hezekiah really is impacted. And one of the biggest things that motivated Hezekiah was the words, the prophecies delivered through Micah. Micah was really essential to the king's success. He was right there as his right-hand man. And Hezekiah launches this amazing reform movement, brings many, many people back to God. And God miraculously restores the nation. He actually saves it at one point. The massive Assyrian army, 185,000 bloodthirsty soldiers are at the gates of Jerusalem. There's no hope for the people and God actually rescues them. That takes place during chapters 4 and 5 of Micah. Well, the result is a huge upturn for the nation. It's one of the most hopeful periods in Judah's history. And then, as with all human nature, (laughs) chapters 6 and 7 comes. A new king comes to power, Manasseh. One of the worst kings Judah ever had. And the nation slides back into idol worship and evil behavior. And the result is a catastrophic downturn for the nation. So I hope that gives you a little bit of sense of just what's going on big picture in the book of Micah. One last question. Is Micah mentioned anywhere else in the Bible outside this book that bears his name? Actually, yes. Jeremiah 26, 17 to 19. Listen to these amazing verses. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of the people, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. Amazing to see the respect that Micah had amongst the elders of the city of Jerusalem, amongst Jeremiah, the prophet who was to come. He was recognized universally throughout the country as a true and powerful prophet of God. Hope that gives you a good sense of who this guy was. Well, remember, just like the parents of little five-year-old Sam had to help him understand, it wasn't Lamb Lamb ultimately turning on the switch for the gas fireplace. It was actually Sam using Lamb Lamb. Micah had to help the people of Judah in the same way recognize their own sinfulness, confess it, and repent so that God could forgive them. 
Well, we come to our second point. It's finally happening. And it's really important to remember that God had been giving his people, the 12 tribes of Israel, these kind of warnings for over 500 years at this point. Now, judgment is finally happening. Scholars point out that Assyria crushed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. So chapter 1 and 2 must have been prophesied by Micah before that, because those two chapters are a prediction that the northern kingdom would be crushed. And the whole Samaria, the people would be taken into exile. So now Micah is given by God some pretty intense words to say right off the bat. Micah 1, 8 and 9. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. That's pretty stark language. Can you imagine if God called me as a pastor to said, Darren, you need to go to downtown Ladysmith and, and you need to start weeping and wailing in the middle of the town. Uh, I want you to take off your shoes. In fact, I want you to go totally naked and I want you to start howling like a jackal. Oh, and, and moaning like an owl. Oh, I don't know how to moan like an owl. Yeah, people would be calling the RCMP really quickly. This is pretty extreme prophesying that Micah is doing. But here's the thing. The kingdom of Judah stands at the brink of disaster. Micah knows that God is bringing Assyria in judgment after 500 years. The northern kingdom, the fate is already sealed. We can see it in verse 6 and 7. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. It's pretty harsh language. But the reason is there's still a chance for that southern kingdom of Judah. That's why Micah has to prophesy in those crazy ways. Say this message in memorable, stark language. Israel constantly turned from the one true God to worship idols. Israel constantly stopped behaving like they should, as I mentioned before. Lots of injustice the way they treated each other. Constant bad deeds in business and stealing each other's land and, and just abusing the foreigner in their midst. And now this memorable phrase, for Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It's kind of like this. Imagine this. You are out with a really good group of friends and you're hiking up and it's an intense hike. You climb up this little mountain and you know that at the top is a flat place, a flat top to the cliff. And, and once you finally reach it up there, you all have a rest. You have something to eat and you're, you're talking. And then somebody says, hey, why don't I take a picture of this great moment? 
And, uh, and so one of your friends grabs the, the cell phone and everyone's phones and their camera and they, they start walking backwards and they get closer and closer to the edge of the cliff to get that shot where all of you can be in. Now, if they're about to step off the cliff, you're not going to kind of really calmly say, hey there, you're about to die. You should stop walking backwards because that will be really painful when you fall a thousand feet to your death. Thanks for listening. Have a nice day. No, you're not going to do that. You're going to scream, no way. You say, stop. You're about to walk off the cliff. And that's Micah's role here. He doesn't have a very peaceful, gentle message from God to that southern kingdom of Judah. He has a last chance warning. Listen to the passionate warnings that God is giving to his people through the prophet. Verses 12 and 13 and verse 16. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. You are where the sin of daughter Zion began. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bold as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Well, Micah chapter 1 stops us in our tracks with its forceful warnings and striking images and and vivid language. But here we are. We are 2,700 years removed From Micah's day, does this ancient text have something to say to you and I? Yes, it does. And that's what we're going to explore in our final point, Micah and our times. Confession and turning our behavior around 180 degrees can be scary. Initially, seems so costly, doesn't it? In May of 1948, three men robbed a bank in Hoyt, Texas. They stole a thousand dollars. A thousand dollars is not much today, but in 1948, that was a huge sum of money. Shortly thereafter, two men were killed in a car wreck, and the police investigated the car wreck and assumed that the two men in the car wreck must have been the bank robbers. So the case was closed. Four years goes by, and then one Sunday morning, in a Baptist church in Kansas named Seaward Avenue Baptist Church, a young man named Al Johnson, 23 years of age, steps up to the pulpit. And he asked the pastor if he could speak, and and he had something to tell the congregation. And he said to the congregation, you need to know that yesterday I went to the district attorney and confessed that I was one of the guys that robbed that bank. And he said this, he said, I thought about that bank robbery many times. He said, I was only 19 when it happened. But he said, I prayed about it, asked the Lord to give me an answer, but the Lord kept giving me one answer, that I needed to turn myself in. Johnson then went to the bank took out a loan, and repaid everything he had stolen. 
Now, Candace and I actually tried to find out through research what happened. Did he end up going to jail? It had this interesting little line that at American law at that point, there was a statute of limitations. And because four years had passed and the police had closed the case, it appears that maybe he didn't have to go to jail, but we don't know that for sure. But it's an amazing moment where where the Spirit of God had convicted this man, Al Johnson, that he needed to do that. That's an interesting thing, standing up in church, confessing that you robbed a bank. Bible scholar Gary Smith helps bridge the 2,700 years between Micah's message of God's call of repentance to down to you and I. This is what he says. He says, we cannot fool him. An uncomfortable situation if we try to put on a good front at church on Sunday while secretly living another life during the rest of the week. The Holy God has proof of our past failures, a record of our incriminating evidence, and the inside story on what really happens. In light of his complete knowledge of our lives, we cannot shrink from our responsibility blame others for our sin, or pretend ignorance. Each person must deal seriously with the problem of sin in his or her life or be ready to accept the consequences. Yet God in Christ is willing to forgive every sin and desires that no one should perish. And he is right. Gary Smith is so right. Listen to 2 Peter 3.9. This is the heart of God. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is truly the heart of God. Not mean and angry and punishing the southern kingdom of Judah for no reason. In fact, he had tried to warn them for 500 years it all comes together for you and I in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. But if we walk in the light, as He, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Love those verses. What a release. Because it's so true. I sin, you sin, we all sin. But the glorious truth is we don't have to stay there. Confession is followed by forgiveness. And that results in freedom and joy being released in all of our lives. So I urge myself, all of us this week, maybe take some time as we walk along a trail or drink a cup of coffee, let's ask God to search our hearts, bring anything to mind that we need to confess. And once we have done that, then we need to let it go and live in the freedom and forgiveness that Jesus offers. Oh, and two last things. Don't blame it on Lamb Lamb. And if you robbed a bank, pay it back. Amen.